Thank you, Elizabeth, for reading that. Those were two sentences there, two kind of hard-hitting statements that Jesus made right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount regarding marriage and divorce. Now, when you heard Elizabeth read those two verses, you may have had a bunch of questions pop up into your mind. Well, what about this? What is Jesus saying here? I want you to hold on to those questions. I can't guarantee that we will answer or address them all, uh, but we will cover a lot of ground this morning. I was looking back um, at some notes. I had actually preached on this passage a number of years ago, and I realized when I, when I preached the first time through this passage, it was actually right around Valentine's Day. So this wouldn't be necessarily the verse you would quote on your Valentine's card to your significant other. Um, and so I was remembering during that time, we were having a conversation around the dinner table um, with my family about Valentine's Day. And, you know, Valentine's Day and, and all the schools, you pass out cards and everything. And I was asking my kids because I was doing some research about the history and the origins of Valentine's Day, I said, well, why do we have Valentine's Day? And they were coming up with various answers, and, and they were like, it's because of St. Valentine. I was like, yeah, you're right. What did he do anyway? One of my kids said, I know what he did. St. Valentine one day saved someone from getting married. That's why we celebrate Valentine's Day. I said, not quite. <laughs> But I wanted to start a little bit lighthearted there because this is somewhat heavy and challenging passage. There are only two verses. There's no disclaimers. There's no qualifiers here or really any nuances from Jesus. Here he speaks some challenging words. And we might feel maybe a little curious, maybe a little uncomfortable, or maybe even a little bit offended by this. And so I want to acknowledge, first of all, that we all come uh, here this morning, we come hearing this passage with all kinds of probably scars and struggles related to marriage and divorce. Maybe it has to do with our own marriages, maybe with our parents, or maybe with people whom we love who are close to us. So wh whether these words are new to you, maybe it's the first time you've heard them, or maybe they're familiar, uh, either way, they can be a little bit hard to hear because they bring a lot of stuff to the surface. So this morning as we step back and as we approach this passage, I want to say this, that these words spoken by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, we've been calling this sermon series Flourish, in light of the Beatitudes, in light of the theme of the entire sermon, we can look at these words and know with confidence these words are not here to burden us, they're not here to berate us or anyone. But in fact, Jesus spoke these words in order to bless us. And so this morning, I want to explore how. How are these words of Jesus a blessing to us? How do they lead us into flourishing? How do they make us into people who bring flourishing to other people in our lives, our spouses? These two verses then are meant to lead us into deeper flourishing in our marriages. So it might be hard to see at first, but I want to unpack that this morning. If you're following along, if you like to take notes in your worship folder bulletin, you'll see that we're going to be looking at four points 
this morning. The first of those is a question. I phrase these all as questions this morning. And the first important question for us to answer is, what was being said about marriage and divorce? What was being said about marriage and divorce in Jesus' day? You look at verse 31, and Jesus says there, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what's happening here, Jesus is not directly quoting any passage of Scripture, but he's addressing an ongoing conversation that was happening at his time regarding marriage and divorce and a collection of Scriptures from the Old Testament. Verse 31 in particular is focused on one passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. If we're ever going to understand what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce, we have to know that he is talking about, referencing, and dealing with this passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24. And that this was the passage, the central passage in Judaism at the time over the question of when is it allowable in God's eyes to end the marriage covenant. So I want to put up for you a slide that has Deuteronomy 24. Do I have that slide? I actually don't have my monitor on there. I'm going to read it for you. And if you would like to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to read some and then paraphrase. Deuteronomy 24 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, And now I'm going to paraphrase. And she marries someone else, and her new husband writes her a certificate of divorce, or he dies. She can't go back to the first husband, Deuteronomy says, because she is defiled. Now, you might at first be saying, you're going to help us understand a difficult passage by reading another difficult passage. But hang on, stay with me for a moment. What is a certificate of divorce? It's mentioned in Deuteronomy. And it's mentioned by Jesus. What is that? A certificate of divorce at the time was a formal legal document that did two things. It ended a marriage and it gave the divorced parties freedom to remarry. So that's what a certificate of divorce did. Everyone at the time agreed that in some instances, divorce was allowable in God's eyes. But when it happened, it needed to be formal, it needed to be clear, and it needed to be binding. Thank you for turning on that monitor. We can go back one slide. We'll save that passage for just a moment. So that's a certificate of divorce. If divorce was going to happen, it needed to have some formality to it, and it needed to have a certificate to allow the person to remarry. That's question one. Question two from Deuteronomy 24 is what is some indecency? In that passage it says, if a man takes a wife and marries her, she she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, then he may send her away with a certificate of divorce. This is where all the debate raged over the meaning of this phrase, some indecency. There were two schools of thought, two camps at the time. There was the Hillel school and the Shammai school. So Hillel taught that anything a husband, in particular for husbands, thought was displeasing about his wife was enough to end the marriage. So it was very broad, 
It was called an any cause divorce. Now, this is a little bit painful to share with all of you, but I want to share some actual examples that are from the writings of this time about valid reasons to end a divorce. These are from the rabbis written in the Mishnah. It said, a man could divorce his wife if she became deaf, if she became mute, if she got warts, if she failed to perform services in the home like cooking and cleaning, if she had poor posture, thinning hair, no eyebrows, too bushy of eyebrows, missing teeth, or a swollen belly, or if against the husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city. These are all things that are recorded in the official legal documents of the time. So it's a little bit funny, but it's also probably a little bit shocking that there was this, you could say, liberal or open stance on divorce in Jesus' day. And rabbis would sign off on divorces for these reasons. And I spared you the most offensive ones, just so you know. <laughs> that was Hillel. But there was a whole other school of thought, and that was Shammai. Shammai said no. You've opened up Deuteronomy 24, and, and the floodgates have opened, and that was never the intention. Some decency meant only unfaithfulness through sexual infidelity. And that's a valid reason to end a marriage. So Shammai said it's not any cause in Deuteronomy 24. It's only one cause. Sexual infidelity. So hearing all that, we might be surprised to learn that in Jesus' day, at the time, even in Judaism, divorce was very common. And most of the divorces that happened were under the any cause reasoning from the Hillel approach. So when Jesus says, all the background here, when you heard it said, it means what he is saying here is addressing this debate about this particular passage. And that's important for us to remember because this is not everything Jesus has to say about marriage or that the Bible has to say about marriage. But in one respect, if you read that within the context there, you see Jesus is in one sense supporting the more restrictive view of Shammai, the more limited view. But he's actually doing more than that. He's not just saying the liberal view, the progressive view is wrong. We need to stick with the traditional conservative view. In one sense, he's saying both are wrong. And he's wanting to reframe the entire conversation. When it comes to marriage, he says, you've all been asking, when do I have an out? And Jesus is saying, the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is saying to another person, I am closing all the ways out. And I'm all in. This isn't the only time Jesus addresses the same question in the Gospel of Matthew. We can put chapter 19 up on the screen now. In Matthew 19, 3 through 10, this question came up because Pharisees wanted to hear more about this from Jesus. So the religious leaders came in this chapter and came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There it is again, Deuteronomy 24. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Next slide. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, 
because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is saying, you're all starting from the wrong place. You can't start with how hard and broken and often how impossible marriage seems. You can't start with the hardness of heart that can often develop in our marriages. We need to recover God's design, God's purpose, God's intention from the beginning. And then you can see the reason why these boundaries, these restrictions against finding a way out exist in the first place. So that's question one. What was being said about marriage and divorce in Jesus' day? He addresses what was said, and he reframes the entire conversation. Second question, what is Jesus saying about marriage? When we see all this background and look at these two verses in context, they are really not about divorce, first of all. They're really first about marriage. Verse 31 is a continuation on from verse 27, where Jesus said there earlier, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And the way that you respond to the seventh commandment is to ask, well, then how big can we make the box for a lawful divorce so I can avoid adultery when I remarry? And Jesus is far less concerned about setting the boundaries and more concerned about why the boundaries exist and are there in the first place. The seventh commandment, why was it given? It was given to protect what's inside the box, what's inside the boundaries, which is marriage. Just as the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is not about avoiding idolatry and false worship. It's about protecting our exclusive loyalty and love for God. So the seventh commandment is not about adultery prevention. It's about the flourishing of marriage. It's about becoming a person who is able to help another person flourish in the lasting covenant of marriage. So in order to see this, we need to take these two verses, and I think we need to read them in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the context of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes tell us where to look for God's blessings for marriage. It's not in the places we would expect. It's not in the places we would think. But it's in the everyday bumps along the road in marriage. It's even when things blow up in marriage. It's even when things hit rock bottom. And we're asking, or we're verbalizing, is there a way out? Jesus says, there, right there, you are in the place where I can pour out my blessing into your life. Let me explain by connecting some of our struggles in marriage to the Beatitudes and to the blessings that Jesus says are found even in those struggles. So I'm going to share a few of these with you on the screen. And maybe for those of you who are married, you have felt like this. <clears throat> I feel hopeless, like I don't have the strength. I don't have the answers or the resources to make this work. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we feel it's so hard, I'm so hurt. I'm holding on to a lot of pain. I'm holding it in. I don't know where to go. So I want out. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sometimes I feel like the only way to survive in my marriage is to manipulate, to get angry, to nag or withdraw. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We might say, I want, a, I want a God-glorifying, happy marriage, but a part of me inside has just died to ever getting there. We've grown so far apart. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Sometimes we feel, I've been so hurt, we're so distant, that all I think about is defending, getting payback, getting even. All I see are my spouse's faults. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We feel sometimes, I'm so unhappy in my marriage, I'm tempted to take my heart and give it to someone or something else. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're just so stuck in conflict, we can't seem to make progress. It's easier for us just to coexist, but if we don't learn how to resolve our conflicts, I don't know what will happen. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be the sons and daughters of God. And lastly, if I take the route of loving, grace-filled commitment, my spouse might just throw it back in my face and nothing will change. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, within the boundaries, even when it's hard, Even when those thoughts cross our mind and we're struggling and we're there, that is where he can pour out blessing in our lives. If God says, stay here, stay in this relationship, stay in this covenant, he is also saying, I am with you and I promise. The word blessing is a covenantal word throughout Scripture. It's God's way of saying, I promise. This is my covenant, and I am faithful to keep it. What does this blessing look like? I should unpack that a little bit. There's a twofold nature to this blessing. One, the first blessing you get when you can move in to the challenges of marriage, trusting in the blessing of the Beatitudes, blessing number one is you will change. Jesus doesn't ever guarantee us a happy marriage or a changed spouse. But he does guarantee to change us when we come to him with the challenges and even in those rock-bottom moments of our marriages. This week, I took a flight, short flight to San Francisco up to spend some time with two of my really good friends uh, on our annual, we call it our brocation, so that was my fun time this week. But on every flight, There's a safety overview. Everybody tunes out and they go over, this is how you put a seatbelt on and all that kind of stuff. But a part of the overview, the safety talk, is everybody locate the exits that are nearest to you. Now, can you imagine if you were listening to one of these safety talks and the flight attendant got to that point and said, on this plane, there are no exits. So if we go down, we are going down together. Enjoy the flight. You probably feel a little claustrophobic and freaked out by that. 
Why do I share that? When we look at what Jesus has to say here, what he's saying is you will miss the blessings of marriage if you are looking for the nearest exit when things get hard. He's saying, if I close all the exits, if I say stay here, stay within these boundaries, it means you need to stay on this ride, stay on this plane, stay on in this marriage until the end because it's the only way I'm going to get you to where I'm taking you so that you will know the blessing of becoming more and more like me. So that's blessing one. You will change. Blessing two, your spouse and your marriage will likely change. No guarantees. Jesus doesn't guarantee change, but the most important human factor in change is having one person in your life, just one person who knows you, who knows your flaws, who knows your brokenness, who has even been hurt by you and doesn't retreat and doesn't go away, but moves towards you in committed and sacrificial love. That is God's most powerful human instrument for change in anybody's life. So if you are that person for someone, you are God's most powerful instrument for what he can do in their life. That's what Jesus is saying about marriage. But what is he saying about divorce? Once we see it in context about why the box exists in the first place, then we're ready to answer the question, well, what is Jesus saying here about divorce? Four things that he's saying. First is caution. As we consider Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, we see that the bond of marriage that makes two into one is something created by God. At every wedding that I do, my last words are what God has joined together. Let no one tear asunder. This God-created bond cannot be broken without a cost, without feeling the pain of tearing that for everyone involved. And I know many of us know that pain. So if the D word has been spoken in your marriage, if it has entered into your mind, Jesus says, caution. Take extreme caution. Secondly, correction. Matthew 19, we read that, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is making a correction here. Even, even in divorces where there are legitimate grounds, Jesus makes a pretty radical move because he changes the language there in Matthew 19. The, the Pharisee said, well then, if you're saying this about marriage, why did Moses command a husband to send his wife away with a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, no, I need to correct that. Moses never commanded it, but he allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. What Jesus is saying is that there's always hope for reconciliation, even in the most difficult of circumstances. That's his correction. Caution, correction, and causes. Some of you are wondering, so what are the causes? What are the biblical reasons and causes for divorce? We must look first at the whole of Scripture, not just this passage, but according to Scripture, according to what Jesus says here, there are some things that are legitimate causes to end the marriage covenant. And we can call those one and two reasons, one, two, and two B, I'll call it. The first one is mentioned here in this passage, adultery and sexual infidelity, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. The second one is mentioned in another part of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, and that is 
when one spouse is deserted by another spouse. That's one, and that's two. And I think we also need to include a 2B. And this is in the language of a report from our denomination on marriage and divorce. And that would be this. Sins which are tantamount in extremity and consequence to actual desertion. These are the reasons that God has given us um, to end the marriage covenant. So all these causes, as Jesus gave us that correction don't mean that divorce is ever commanded. Reconciliation and repentance should be sought. But though, though always costly and painful, Scripture does allow for divorce in these cases. Two more C's. Compassion and care. Sometimes these verses are looked at as the only thing that Jesus has to say about marriage, about divorce, about our struggles, about our failures. And when we do this, we tend to lose sight of compassion and careful attention to the circumstances that people are in, and careful application of all of Scripture to whatever the circumstances are. We try to fit everything into these two verses, which is the very thing Jesus is modeling and showing us throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not what we are to do when it comes to the complexities of life. So what happens if you've fallen short? in this area of life. Initiating a divorce for reasons outside of the boundaries set by Jesus is sinful, but it is not by any means an unforgivable sin. It is not by any means in a special class of sins that needs to be dealt with or talked about in a different way. As with any sin, Jesus invites us to repentance, for healing, for forgiveness, and for renewal. And through that process of repentance before God, before all the parties involved, whenever possible and not harmful, and through the reconciliation of the relationship in whatever way you can. When we follow those steps, we can know that there is complete forgiveness and complete restoration with God. Last question. There are many questions that we could ask about this, but when it comes to remarriage, remarriage is allowable when divorced for biblical causes, and also after the steps of reconciliation and repentance have been followed, even if we're not sure if what we've done falls within the box, even if we know, if we know that it hasn't. Jesus allows, I believe, in this text and throughout Scripture for remarriage in those cases. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of questions. That's a lot of thoughts that I've shared about marriage, about divorce, and remarriage. I want to address those of you who are here who are not married. We've been talking to those who are married for most of this sermon. A few thoughts for singles in light of this passage. First, what's on your list? A lot of people have a list of things they're looking for in their potential partner when they do make the decision to get married. Here's what I need to see. They need to check this box, that box, and that box. There's a pastor named Will Willimon who said, when it comes to a marriage ceremony, the pastor officiating does not ask, John, do you love Susan? The pastor asks, John, will you love Susan? Love is defined here as something we promise to do. It is the result of marriage rather than its cause. 
That completely changes the way we think about what it means to prepare for marriage. Our list should be more for ourselves and ways we can grow into becoming the kind of person who can keep a lifelong promise. What's on your list? Secondly, what are your fears? The Marriage and Family Research Council found that the U.S. marriage rate is at 31.1. It means 31 marriages for every 1,000 unmarried women. For comparison, in 1920, the national marriage rate was 92.3. So marriage is being delayed longer and longer. And for many people, it's just being discarded as something that's no longer relevant or necessary. And that's because so many of us are afraid and disillusioned by what we've seen in our own experience of marriage. Jesus here has a lot of caution, but he also promises in marriage, I can make you a person who can flourish, a person who can learn to give themselves to another for their own flourishing. So yes, it is hard, but know that I meet you there with blessing. So don't be afraid. I am with you. Third question, what do you seek? The worst way to start a marriage is thinking your spouse will complete you or somehow satisfy all your needs. Only Jesus can do this. And as you wait, as you trust, as you wonder whether God is calling you to get married or not, or when or to who, know this, you are in no way deficient as a single person. Jesus was a single person. And he was a full, complete, and whole human being. And Jesus is enough. A thought for those who are married. If in your marriage right now you are distant, if you feel like you are stuck, if you feel like you are just struggling, what Jesus has to say to you is don't wait. Get help. Get support now. This is a question that I often ask when I, when I teach a premarital class or some other class on marriage. I ask people, now think of, in your mind right now, the marriages that you've seen, that you've experienced, that you would want to model your own marriage after. Think of those marriages. Often there's only a handful, maybe a couple marriages that people can come up with. The marriages that come into my mind, every single one of them, had to receive significant help through counseling, through the support of friends. They couldn't do it on their own. So if you're stuck and if you're struggling, get help. We all need it. Last question. What about God's marriage and divorce? As important as marriage is in our lives, as important as marriage is in the Bible, one of the surprises about Scripture is how few references there are to marriage. There's not a handbook on marriage in the Bible. There's not a specific letter written to married couples. There are only a handful of passages in the whole Bible that directly speak to marriage. The marriage that is most often talked about in the Bible is not our marriages to each other, but God's marriage to His people, to His bride. How can we flourish in the ups and in the downs of marriage? How can we become people who are prepared to be the kind of spouse who can flourish in the ups and the downs and the challenges of marriage? Jesus said, it is because of the hardness of your heart that often marriage will end 
in a breakdown. We need the softening of our hearts in order to flourish in our marriages. Jim Gottman is a marriage researcher. You may have heard his name. He's done a ton of research in the field of marriage and divorce. He said the number one predictor of divorce is contempt. When contempt creeps into your marriage, which is another way of saying hard-heartedness, that's the number one predictor that things will end. So what can soften our hearts when they become hard? It's God's faithful and suffering and covenant love for us that softens our hearts. In Jeremiah 3, this picture, this metaphor of marriage is used for God's relationship with his people. And there at the beginning of Jeremiah 3, verse 1, it says, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is writing in reference to what we just read earlier in Deuteronomy 24. In this picture between God and his people, he's saying, would you even return to me after you've been so unfaithful? The metaphor of how we look and how the people of Israel have looked for love and security and meaning and satisfaction in anything but God. And God says, would you return to me? Later in verse 8, he says, And so I sent her away with a decree of divorce. But that's not the end. In verse 12, same chapter of Jeremiah 3, he says, Go and proclaim these words to faithless Israel. Go to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Until we see Jesus' faithful and pursuing and covenant love for us as the perfect spouse, as the perfect husband, we won't really understand or be able to apply the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce. Until we see our own sin, the way we resist God, the way we run from God as spiritual adultery, we won't be able to fully comprehend what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. What softens the heart is knowing that despite our unfaithfulness, that despite our spiritual adultery, God did not let us go our way, but he pursued us in suffering and faithful love. We read it earlier, but Ephesians 5 tells us what this looks like. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God says, I know what it's like to love a hard-hearted, unfaithful spouse. I know what it's like to try and try again and be disappointed time and time again. He says, I know what it's like to give and to give and to get nothing in return. Yet none of this stops me from loving you. None of this shapes the way that I see you. I don't see all that ugliness. I don't see all that sin. Instead, I see what I am making you in Jesus. And I am committed to getting you there. When our hearts are softened by that love, 
then we're able to experience the flourishing in our relationships, especially in the hardest times in the covenant of marriage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. They challenge us. They cause us to have questions. And we still might have many questions on our minds and hearts. And I pray right now for those preparing one day to be married. I pray that you would shape them by your faithful and covenant love. I pray right now for those who have been through divorce. I pray that you would meet them with your compassionate, forgiving call to return and find cleansing. I pray for those who are married and who are experiencing the struggles and the bumps and the breakdowns of marriage. I pray that you would meet them with great encouragement, that you would bless them, and that you would pour out your softening love into their hearts, and that you would do whatever it takes to have them turn toward each other in a renewal of their covenant love and faithfulness. We know we can only love because you have first loved us. Thank you for your love in your son Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen.